There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So that I was, um, found the Spice Girls, I was dressed as Scary Spice, and my mother and I were walking to the dentist. And essentially, that's how I found my feminism. Hopefully, did I put that? You're listening to Feminists Don't Wear Pink, the podcast, based on the book Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, a collection of writing by 52 women on what feminism means to them. I'm Scarlett Curtis. I'm a writer, activist, journalist, and very, very proud feminist. I'm also the curator of this book and the presenter of the podcast. During this series, I'm going to be talking to a few of the amazing contributors who've written our book to find out how they found their feminism and some of the lies that they've been told about what it means to be a woman. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. I feel incredibly lucky and proud to have three of our contributors here with me today. Nimco Ali is a Somalian social activist who's dedicated her life to ending FGM. Uh, she's co-founder and director of the Daughters of Eve nonprofit organization. And this week, she was named as one of the Evening Standard's 1,000 Most Influential People in London. But also, you weren't like one of the 1,000. You were like one of the kind of chosen 1,000, because 1,000 is a lot of people. Uh, I'm just pretending I was on the list now. <laughs> um, Charlie Craggs is a trans activist and the founder of Nail Transphobia. She's been recognised by The Guardian and The Independent as one of the most influential and inspirational LGBTQ people in the United Kingdom and ranked number one on Observer's 2016 New Radicals list. In 2017, she published To My Trans Sisters, an inspirational collection of letters written by successful trans women sharing the lessons they learn on their journey to womanhood, celebrating their achievements and empowering the next generation to become who they truly are. Tasha Bishop is the founder of the online platform The Pants Project, where she's turned her own struggles with Maya Rokitansky Kusterhauser syndrome. Is that okay? Impressive. <laughs> um, into a cause for change and a platform to empower women all through the method of excellent underwear. Um, so, this is the question we always begin with. What is one lie you've been told about what it means to be a man or a woman? Oh, I think I'm probably most qualified to go first because I've been both a man and a woman. <laughs> Not really. Um, so I guess um, the biggest lie I've been told is that there's a certain type of way to be a man or to be a woman. I think we're coming into an age where we're starting to realise, or a few of us at least are starting to realise, that there's more than one way to be a man or to be a woman and that those lines are blurred and free-flowing and mm. you don't have to constrict yourself 
to being a certain type of person if it's detrimental to your kind of mental health or your physical health or whatever. Like, it's, I think that's what I learned in my life is just to be my own type of person yeah. and free yourself from the kind of restrictions that society places on us to be a certain type of person. I think that's the biggest lie. I love that. And I also feel like by having these ideas of what it means to be a man or a woman, yeah. everyone is necessarily failing. You know, you, we don't know what the perfect version of that is. Yeah. And so everyone is just trying and failing instead of us all going, I'm great, yeah. who I am. Exactly. Um, what about you? Um, it's, really, it's really weird that um, I, I always say that I didn't know I was a girl until I had FGM. It was wow. because, because, because ultimately I was raised, I had brothers and cousins that were all grown up at the same time, and they had, um, which FGM was sat along male circumcision, and, and they had male circumcision, so I just assumed it was going to be the same kind of similar experience. And it was after I had FGM, and then these kind of ideas of what it is to be a woman were kind of confronted onto me, that's when I realised that I was actually not like my cousins and not like my uncles. Mm. Um, so I think, my, I, think the, I think the biggest lie I was told there was the fact that I wasn't born perfect and I had to go through something like FGM in order to be accepted as a woman. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, that was, I think that's... And since then, since the age of seven, when I just realised that this was a really stupid thing, I've been really con deconstructing that, so I've never really necessarily had the same conversations about being a woman. I've always had this fight that I had to fight to not be what I was being... Um, transformed into within my culture or what it, it, um, it was in the West. So, yeah. Do you want to, just for anyone that doesn't know, do you want to explain a bit about what FGM is and why it gets performed? Yeah, so um, FGM stands for female genital mutilation and it affects um, 200 million women across the world and it dates back over 4,000 years. And as a seven-year-old, it was something that I was subjected to, but I wasn't given any context to it. And I think that kind of comes about finding my own idea of what, what, and what it was to be a woman, to be a survivor, and all these things. And ultimately, it just happens because there's this massive fear about... Un unrestricted women and that's for me for what I learned because what you do to a girl when you cut her is you break her down and then that patriarchal society constructs her to the things that they want her to be so subservient quiet um, disciplined within a certain line mm -hmm. so it's one of the most horrific forms of organized um, crime against the female gender really and it happens in the UK as well. It happens in the UK, it happens globally, but um, obviously it's most concentrated. So when I say that thing about being a woman is, um, my kind of construction of a womanhood has been either been British and therefore I couldn't identify as an FGM survivor or if I was African, I had to identify wholly as what women that were cut had to be. So it's a really interesting question that nobody ever told me how I could be a girl. They always try to bring me these um, different narratives that I try to fight against. And literally change your body into what they thought a girl yeah. should be. And then also change your mind to accept those things as normal. So I didn't want to accept FGM as normal um, because that's what all the women in my family um, had been through. And I also didn't want to accept FGM as something that couldn't be stopped, which a yeah. lot of the other women in my non-Somali um, or African um, community were all talking about was the fact that it was this thing that, that you couldn't overcome. Yeah. And for me, I think that was the main thing that I wanted to say, that it's a really stupid thing that happens to women, but we can really overcome it. Yeah. And what about you, Tesh? Amazing. No, I was just so blown away by you, Nomko. But um, I think one thing that I think is really interesting about like all three of our stories as women um, and the lies we've kind of been fed in terms of what we believe we are is that it's also kind of intrinsically linked to our bodies. Mm. Um, and for me, when I was diagnosed with um, MRKH, which means... Um, I could have said that. <laughs> I know, so much <laughs> um, Which means I was born without a womb. 
Um, and it affects me in two kind of big ways that really made me think about what it means to be a woman and what society thinks it means to be a woman. Um, so I can't have children, and um, to have sex, I had to have an operation. Um, and it, I immediately felt like, why am I here as a woman if I can't be a mother mm-hmm. and I can't be this like sex object that society has kind of turned women into? Um, so that's definitely the biggest lie I've been told, is that women are this very two-dimensional, linear um, kind of pattern of events that we all have to follow, and if we don't follow them, then we don't really live up to what we've been put here to do, yeah. um, which is obviously not true. How old were you when you were diagnosed? Um, so I was 16, but there was kind of a few years before... I would, um, When I was 13, all my friends in my year had kind of started their period, and it was this club that like everyone had to be part of in order to kind of progress into womanhood um and I so badly wanted to be part of that club and I think that's such a huge problem there's such a huge pressure to be this very specific type of woman who goes through these like goes over these gates in order to get to womanhood whatever that is um and I actually ended up lying and telling all my friends that I had started my period because I was just so embarrassed that i couldn't do this one thing that defined you as a woman um and so I kind of lived with that for a few years and then I was like hold on a second like I'm never gonna have children or even know what's wrong with me if Mm -hmm. I don't kind of come clean and then when I went through the diagnosis process I was a bit like whoa what on earth just happened um and it took me a while to really figure out that um it doesn't define me as a woman not being able to do things that other women can do my, my next question is, when did you realise you were a feminist, or have you always been one? For you, was it linked to what happened, or was it before that? I think I've always been... I mean, I've grown up with, like, three older brothers, who anyone who has an older brother than here knows that they can be um, tough at times. <laughs> um, and I, th- I think I always try to stand up for myself, but I had the most incredible female role models in my life um, who showed me what it was to be a strong woman um, and so I kind of think I have always been a feminist but it wasn't until I was diagnosed that I really learned what feminism was um, and what my feminism was because I think feminism has become this kind of all-encompassing thing whereas in fact I think feminism is your own your own concept and you can yeah. define it how, how you want. Yeah I think for me I up until the age of like 14 I was thought feminism was done yeah. You know, we learned about suffragettes at school. I come from a very privileged family. I'm white, I'm straight, I'm cis. And I think I was just like, we don't need that anymore. You know, it's fine. And for me, and I definitely saw feminists as like people that couldn't shave their legs or wear pink or, you know, all my favourite hobbies. <laughs> um, and it was, it for me, it wasn't until I went through something that, you know, and I don't think, it's tough because I don't think you should have to go th- be a victim of the patriarchy to become a feminist but I think that is the case for so many women and you know I was very ill for a long time and then was treated very badly by a lot of doctors and it, it wasn't until then um Charlie did you talk about feminism before your transition or did absolutely it come yeah then? like I think um I'd always been really, really feminist my whole life. Like, I'd always been... I didn't maybe call it feminism because I didn't maybe have a word for it when I was a child and I felt really strongly about, like, sexism. I didn't know, what I guess, what sexism was, but I was just angry by when I, I saw, like, bad things happening, things I didn't agree happening. I yeah. felt really strongly about women's issues, and I think that's probably because I was... So just to preface this, like, I... Though, so I'm, I'm obviously trans, but I didn't... Um, 
I was always very feminine. I liked super, super feminine. Like I'd been saying, oh, I wish I was a girl from the age of four. Like it mm. wasn't like I was this like big rugby player straight man before I transitioned. I had always been a very feminine being and I'd always known I was a girl, but I didn't have a word for it. Yeah. But um, so I'd always felt, I guess maybe the reason I felt so strongly about women's issues is because I, I felt feminine and I was persecuted for my femininity. I'm from a council state. I'm from Labrick Grove. Um, I'm from a really kind of tough like, not tough, but, like, macho family. I got, like, all brothers, like, three, yeah. two brothers, and, like, my dad is quite manly as well. And then, like, I went to an all-boys tough school. So, like, I'd always kind of really been persecuted for my femininity. So, like, I guess I... I always felt like this kind of allyship with women. Like, and women were the one, the people who took me under their wing and were the ones who didn't bully me and the ones who let me be myself and stuff. So I'd always felt really strongly connected to mm. femininity and to women and to feminism. I just didn't call it... I didn't know what feminism was maybe at that age. And I guess maybe now it's, like, more clear maybe why I was so feel, feeling so strong about feminism because maybe I, I, I just... I, obviously, I was a woman and I was yeah. a girl, but, like, I didn't maybe know it. They don't have the, the terminology for it. But yeah. um, maybe that's why. But that's not to say that men can't be feminists. Yeah. Like, if you're a, a cis man and you're not a trans woman or whatever, you can still care about feminism and stuff, obviously. But yeah. um, I just think that's maybe why I cared so much. Um, Nimco, you kind of wrote about how you found feminism um, in your piece in the book. I was wondering if you wanted to do a little reading. Oh. Well, while I was dressed, while I was dressed as um, Scary Spice, is how I found my feminism. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just to kind of put it into a context, in the sense that um, I was I was um, 13 at the time, and two years prior to that, I because I had a very in- invasive form of FGM, I almost died. So there, so that I was um, found the Spice Girls. I was dressed as Scary Spice, and my mother and I walk into the dentist, and essentially that's how I found my feminism. Hopefully, did I put that? <laughs> Uh, and see, can I just say before you start, the thing... So Nemco's one of my heroes of all time. You completely are. Like, I try and be like you. I wake up and think, what would Nemco do? Um, and I sometimes feel like among, in the feminist movement, we have these lines between, like, real feminists yeah. and then, like, f- you know, fluffy feminists. And I think some people would call the Spice Girls fluffy feminists and call you a real feminist, and that's why I love your piece. No, because it, there was a really um, a bridge line. So I found the definition of what FGM was and really to understand it in a violence against women and girls context by reading um, Noelle Adesalawa, who's this Egyptian feminist who wrote her book on eyeliner in a prison cell in Egypt when she was being um, arrested um, for basically st- standing against a dictator. And she wrote this um, um, essay called The Defacing of Eve, which ultimately talked about her FGM. I was um, 12 and a half when I first read it. I didn't understand that she was a feminist writer, but she wrote so passionately about this act of violence that happened to her and everybody that was in the room was people she loved and she was really calling out for help. And I just thought, oh my God, I really understand this. Yeah. And then about a year and a half later, it was like there was these like girls in tracksuit bottoms and crazy hair like mine that were jumping around and they were meeting like Nancy Mandela. They were like sacking their, um, um, their managers and they were really doing this thing where it was like understated feminism, but ultimately at the same time, they were directly speaking to us. And I... And I've always taken my cue from that in the sense that I'm never um, confrontational when I meet um, world leaders because the idea of FGM is that it's sustained for so long because of the fact that it keeps a lot of people in power. And my thing is that I'm immensely privileged. I live in the West. I can um, run away at any time if I go to these African countries, but I know that I'm advocating on behalf of young girls that can't um, have those powers and do Mm. those things. Um, So, okay, I'll shut up and read the first bit of this. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it says, like, you know, dear 
activist sister and badass feminist. As you read this, you're either a full-on feminist or thinking about it. You might be starting a campaign seeking to join one or just pissed off about how fucked up the world is for women and girls. It's true, the patriarchy is fucking million of us. I like... I swear is okay, so hopefully, I'm oh, sorry. Um, it, seems like um, it seems like things can only get worse, but let me um, tell you a secret. Things are changing and we are winning. Women and girls across the world are standing together, speaking out and building movements that I believe will lead to a truly equal world. These badass women are changing the world and are just like you. So stop thinking about being a feminist and join us. There is no one-size-fits-all movement. All you need to do is care and want to change the world. If you do, then you are a feminist and you have been forever. The day you were born a girl, even if you were born in the richest country in the world, you were born to fight for everything you have or everything you will have or everything you want to have. Ever since they blamed Eve for getting us kicked out of the Garden of Eden, um, women and girls have been seen as something to fear and something to be kept in their place. The tools of oppression used are different depending on where you were born, um, but at the heart of them is the ability to create fear. Um, fear is what might happen if you, as a girl or a woman, step outside the narrative created for you. Like I said, these tools can be different, and I'm going to tell you the story about how the patriarchy tried to break me, and in finding to back how I find my voice. And today, I am one of the million women seeking to create a better world for generations to come. Almost 30 years ago, I was subjected to one of the worst forms of gender-based violence. It was an act that was meant to break me, it was, and, and, and it nearly did. I almost died at the age of 11 due to complications of FGM. FGM, which stands for Female Genital Mutilation, is a procedure act that involves partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or injury to the female genitalia for non-medical reasoning. Non-medical is the key word here. Um, I was seven when I was subjected to FGM, and yes, it was painful, but it was also stupid. Um, and that is what drove me to ask the question. I was told that FGM was going to help me become a woman, and in all fairness, those around me believed in this, but I did not. Until that moment, being a girl had been fun um, and not so different from being a boy. To be honest, I was not aware of the gender I was born into and how, for centuries, it had been the one under attack. Um, I think I'll stop there. It's yeah. a bit longer. <laughs> it's um, on, it's in there amazing. somewhere, anyway, if you read it. Um, and the whole piece is incredible, if you buy the book. Um, now, so a question that I think keeps coming up when we do these events and when I'm talking to people, and I have this group called The Pink Protest, and we do a lot of events, is, you know, I think all of us kind of sometimes feel like we're living in a bit of a feminist bubble, and everyone around us is a feminist, and it's an amazing world, and then sometimes things can happen and you realise that there's this whole world out there that doesn't believe in what we believe in. Ch Charlie, what... I feel like you, of anyone I know, have a really unique and amazing approach to getting people involved who maybe don't believe this. How do you do that? Thank you, Scarlett. Can I have that on my CV, please? Yes. <laughs> so, just to explain what I do a bit. So, um, I travel around the country with a pop-up nail salon and I offer the public free manicures for the chance to sit down and have a chat with a trans person, just in a bit to kind of humanise the issue, but to give people a chance to sit down with a trans person and ask me questions. You can ask whatever you want, sort of thing. And, yeah, just to kind of, like, show you that we're not what the Daily Mail is saying, basically. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just a 
about conversation, really. The nails are just a catalyst for that conversation and a way of engaging people in the conversation around trans rights who wouldn't normally be engaged. Because I think that's what we need more of as a society, mm. and that's not just with trans issues. It's just as a society, we need to talk more. Yeah. And we need to talk more to people who aren't in our feminist bubble or in our echo chambers. We need to be talking to people from communities that we've never met before. And you'll often see that we have a lot more in common than we do different. I love that. And I think, I think someone's clapping. You oh, clap. yes. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> And I think something I've heard you say before is I think sometimes we're, we're living in this world where you're expected to like come out of the womb completely woke and like yeah. understanding everything. Of course. And then people get scared that they're going to make a mistake and then yeah. they don't try and learn more. Yeah. And you, I mean, you've said before, like a lot of people have never met a trans person yeah, or so have never yeah. asked the questions they want to ask. And they might be completely... Yeah, and that's know. totally valid. It's not their fault. Like, yeah. I don't blame people for being... I blame people for being, like, maliciously transphobic, but mm. there's ignorance, and you can't help being ignorant. I was ignorant once. Before I transitioned, I didn't know the word tranny was a bad word. There's yeah. probably people in here who don't know the word tranny is a bad word now, but it's because the media use words like tranny. Porn uses words like tranny. Yeah. Everything uses... Music uses... Everything uses words like tranny. So, like, how are you going to know it's a... A bad word yeah. or, any, or anything like that. So I don't. I'm not angry at people for being uneducated. It's just about like bringing them into that conversation in a friendly way. Like I think we need to be talking more rather than shouting at each other. Maybe although shouting sometimes <laughs> valid. Yeah. Like, I think that's a really powerful thing because I think the dialogue is really um, being stifled by places like Twitter and this conversation that everybody has to be educated about yeah. things. Yeah. And I um, and I've met a lot of offensive people, but I just don't take offence. And I think that is a that is a powerful standpoint to have if you are gonna cross over and have real dialogue because there is like you know people do use slurs but then we automatically jump on them so much that it's really hard for them to actually come back and really want to understand and really want to learn yeah. yeah and it's um and even and also who can have a conversation within the space who's privileged enough to have a conversation i'm um like you know i'm a muslim i was raised a muslim and educated a catholic so i understand religion like incredibly well <laughs> and i have it and i'm quite offensive about religion but in a way of respect and one of the key issues that we're having at the moment which really I find um, really disheartening is how we're stifling a lot of women's um, liberation in other countries with our ability to not to offend and to be politically correct. Yeah. So um, we didn't invent feminism in the West. There's incredible feminist women in the Middle East, in Africa, and in, and in South America, and all these places. But yet at the same time, we don't give those authentic stories enough respect. So um, one of the things that really um, concerns me at the moment is the growth of a narrative that is very restricted in terms of how Islam is read. So if you, um, so Marks and Spencer, for example, is starting to sell headscarves for three-year-olds. And, um, and Majid Nawaz, who is um, a commentator and a very prolific writer on the, on the teachings of Islam and everything else, said, like, you know, just called Marks and Spencer out, saying, this is bullshit, why are you sexualizing three-year-olds? And the fact that he's been shut down as a Muslim man not being able to say those things, mm -hmm. and there's Muslim women in Iran who are taken off the headscarf and being arrested, and we in the West are unable to allow women to have a conversation about how our body is policed. So yeah. I, for example, I'm not for enforcing the burqa or banning the burqa because they are just as bad as each other. But I am about having conversations about those things. Yeah. Um, labiaplasty, which is the third most common form of um, cosmetic surgery for young girls, which essentially is defined as FGM. So when I put those things on the same level, people are like, oh, you can't do that because like, FGM is so horrible. I'm like, but it's also horrible that if your society constructs you to pay £3,000 to have mm. the same procedure that I had. So there is a lot of... Um, I think intellectual conversation and the ability to really um, hash things out has disappeared. And yeah. that's something that 
I was really grateful for growing up because I came from a very confusing background. So yeah, I think we do need to like ha sit down and have those conversations without just yeah. jumping down on people's throats. I completely yeah. agree. Um, so the book is all about, it's a lot of women's voices on the lies that they feel they've been told about what it means to be a feminist, but also just how they found their feminism. Tasha, how did you choose to write what you wrote for the book? Um, I think I chose it because it feels like it's completely who I am as a person. Um, it like changed my entire life, made me rethink like who I was and whether I was really a woman. Um, thanks, doctors. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't know. There's no other story that I feel like perfectly describes like how I came to be who I am. So do you want to read us what you wrote? Yeah, sure. Not many women are told they are born without a womb. In fact, only one in 50,000 of us are. From the day we emerge from our mother's womb, women carry the responsibility of one day holding another life in their own womb. We still live our lives according to the affirmation that women are mothers, period or periodless. My 16th birthday present, along with a new pair of petal pink converse, think Scarlett would have liked this, was my rokotansky kuster hauser syndrome. I was told I had been born without a womb. I would never have a period, I would never give birth, and if I wanted to have sex, I would have to undergo invasive long-term treatment. So if I can't be a mother, if I can't contribute to the tampon tax fund, and I can't be used for sex, how can I be a woman in this world? I'm so often asked why I started a charity selling underwear to raise awareness for women's issues, and a year on from launching, my reaction is still exactly the same. To cut a long story short, while I was in hospital having the treatment that would enable me to have sex, I struggled to define my identity as a woman and felt particularly unworthy of feeling feminine in any capacity. My fairy godmother of a nurse advised me to buy some knickers that made me feel empowered, so I did, and it worked, and those pants are why I am here as a proudly unconventional, messy, multifunctional, mixed-up woman. Despite being part of a mass movement some people are calling third or fourth-wave feminism, a movement supported by millions of women and men all over the world. When it comes to telling my story, social anxiety still gets the better of me. I usually smile awkwardly, blush with embarrassment, and wipe my sweaty palms down my jeans. I've created a community and project that I am incredibly proud of, built on women freely expressing and loving themselves, but I am still soaked in shame when it comes to telling the story of how I went from an uninterested grey-white granny pants owner to an underwear enthusiast and power pants advocate. Just FYI, granny pants are the best pants you can get anyway. So. <laughs> I spend my days on the internet creating content to fight the patriarchy, promote feminism, and empower women at all costs. So it's hard for me to admit that I still struggle with humiliation and a lack of confidence in being female, but I do. I am so aware and still hurt by the fact that I am not what society sees as a normal woman, that my condition means I don't fit in with society's standards of how a woman should be, and yet I preach day in, day out, that we are all individually and beautifully unique and should strive to embrace that and be unapologetically ourselves. That's not to say I don't believe in my own manifesto, because I do wholeheartedly, but I am also human and sometimes trying to be a positive, pioneering, patriarchy-fighting pinball of energy is challenging. We live in a world that is entirely visual, thank you, Instagram, <laughs> a world where seeing is believing, so above all else, I do my very best to be honest. I'm just going to skip to the end bit. When women write about feminism, it can be destructive. We so often write about how our gender limits us, whereas perhaps a better approach is to think about what we can achieve in spite of the way society limits us through its construction of gender norms. This is the reason I started the Pants Project. 
to heal others, to empower others, to disable the stereotype of what it means to be a woman, and also to heal myself and remind myself of all the things I can achieve in spite of my own limitations. By the time I reach the end of my post or piece for the Pants Project each day, I remember why it exists, to remind us that there is no such thing as normal, there is no defining factor of womanhood, and that being or becoming a woman doesn't happen overnight. No matter who you are, if in your mind you are born a girl, you will grow to be a woman through experience. It is not a biological process, it is not losing your virginity, or giving birth, or raising children, nor is it a thing that can be calculated or defined. It is a staggeringly ineffable, gorgeous uphill battle from chaos towards a chosen selfhood of contentment, self-belief and empowerment. A battle that cannot be won unless women work together, build each other up and celebrate each other's uniqueness. Women are not just mothers. We are multitudinous marvels undefined by anything other than ourselves. Gender is a construct, but it is how we choose to move through our lives that makes us who we are. May the power of pants be with you. Yes. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, I love it so much. You're such a good writer. Um, I think something else that I get asked a lot is like how to do feminism. Because I think a lot of people believe they are a feminist but then don't know what to do next. Tasha, there's, there can be a lot of criticism that I think we've both gotten about like online activism of any sort. Or, you know, it's called collectivism and anything like that. Whenever I'm asked, like, can you really make a difference online, you're the person that I talk about because you have made, almost single-handedly, you were like, the, you've made my Instagram a place where I feel safe and happy and empowered. How, how do you use your Instagram to basically change the world? I mean, I was talking to um, Honey Ross about this earlier, and we were talking about how activism is often a selfish thing mm. um, in a good way. Um, so for me, what I really needed after my diagnosis was to see um, or like really make myself believe that you aren't defined by kind of what your body looks like and what it's created and with. And, and so I just really needed to prove to myself but also show the world that there was this huge range of women and we're not just put in boxes. Um, and social media is the most wonderful way to do that. It's, you have a voice and you can access so many people. And by, you know, as I was saying, it's like such a visual world we live in and we see we're like constantly influx with like the same looking people doing the same things. Um, and if you can break that and change what, what happens online, you're opening up this huge conversation in this world and you're redefining what it means to be a woman and to be able to do that is such a privilege. I'm so happy I'm like of this generation. Although it can be difficult sometimes online is like What are the difficult parts for you? I think it's there's a certain pressure to always be positive um, and always be this kind of like pioneering, like we must kind of change everything. But there's of course like more days than not I still look at myself in the mirror and I was like, oh I wish I looked a bit different or I wish I was like a bit skinnier or like blah, 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 blah. And everyone understands what that feels like. And it's difficult to try and overcome that each day and, and, yeah. and remember why you're doing it. Um, and I think so. that's also part of... There's a few pieces in this book kind of talking about 
the perfect feminist and how sometimes we feel like if you have a moment of self-doubt or a moment of, you know, when you wake up one day and you just feel like you're so ugly and you can't accept yourself or when you, you know, have a bad thought about another woman that you're almost, like, betraying this whole movement. And I think part of what we're trying to show is that it, all of us have those moments and all of us have those idiosyncrasies where you're not the perfect feminist. And yeah. by even having this idea of the perfect feminist, we're adding yet another pressure that women feel to be perfect, which is mm. the whole point also, of feminism is to And also the, abil the ability to be, um, to be vulnerable, because I haven't met you before, but I think um, once you're an activist and you use your personal experience as mm. the foundations of your feminism, it is really intrusive. It's like you don't want to be an activist every single day. Yeah. And I think we're both talking about... I think So um, all three of us have gone through certain um, body changes, the fact that a lot of people will be very curious about. And I think there's, there's a lot of voyeurism in that kind of conversation. Yeah. And I remember when I first started the activism um, around FGM, it was everybody just wanted to talk about my anatomy. And I just thought, like, for God's sake, I don't want to sit here and talk about my vagina every single day. Yeah. It is a very important part of my... Preach. Yeah, it yeah. is a very important part of my life. So hearing you talk, it is that thing where you're just having dinner or you're just having a coffee and people are like, oh my God, I really love your work yeah. and they want to talk about a very personal thing. So I think it's about having the power of when you want to share something mm. and when sometimes you just want to have a break because it does take a massive toll yeah. to keep being honest and try to keep being positive. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, like one conversation I had with someone the other day. Yeah, come on. Um, with, obviously, the, since when I kind of first started the Pants Project, the infertility community on Instagram didn't really exist, yeah. and which is unbelievable. That was like two or three years ago, and now it's like booming and it's amazing. But I was having a conversation with a girl the other day, and she was like um, saying, "Like, how do you feel when you switch off Instagram?" And you, you, and I kind of said, "Well, I have to keep reminding myself that I have to live with this every day, yeah. like when I turn my phone off." Um, and but the best part, the best part of having like social media and stuff now is that. If I have that kind of day or that evening, I go back on it the next day and I say, yesterday was really crap and I felt really bad. Yeah. And other people will comment and be like, oh my God, same. Like, and it's just this like, amazing community of like, positivity, even when you think it's negative, yeah. if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's also, we, we do need to talk about it. It is very normal to feel demoralised. And I think we're living in a very odd time to be a feminist and you know it's there's always been atrocities and it's always been hard but I think it's particularly overwhelming now with headlines and the news and even last week when you know when certain thing happened with a certain shop and a certain man um <laughs> and uh that and then the Kavanaugh getting through and it, there are days when you just wake up and I wake up and cry like I just can't handle it all and I think it's knowing people like you and reading your work that makes me believe that we're going to be okay. Um, Charlie, what would you... You know, all of us are very lucky to dedicate our lives to this kind of work, but if someone, you know, has a very busy life and not much time, what would you say is one thing that you can do within your life to make a difference in any way? Yeah, um, you don't have to start a campaign, just support a campaign. Like, there's four campaigns here you can support. There's a million more. Like, yeah. it's just, yeah, just like, it doesn't, it doesn't even t take that much time to, you don't have to, like, invest actual physical time. Even you can, it can be as simple as things as, like, signing things. Yeah. If we have, like, petitions or coming on a march for a couple of hours or, you know... I don't know, writing to an MP for, mm -hmm. like, an issue that someone is campaigning for, like, and then, yeah, I think... 
That's or even like educating yourself and then yeah. talking to people about it. Or, yeah, talking to a friend. Like what I ask people to do is like go away and once we've had my conversation, once I've done your nails and like tell someone else yeah. maybe what you've learned. Like not even t- in a way of like I learned this day, but just like if you see one of your friends like or say you, like often my thing is very femme focused. So often I do a lot of women's and gay people's nails and I'm like to the girls like if your boyfriend is like being a douchebag and is like making fun of a trans woman in public or something, tell him that's not cool. Or like yeah. if you see someone post a status about like mm a trans person like Caitlyn Jenner and calling them a man, like, call them out. Like, you don't have to do it in a confrontational way, but, like, just, like, ripples making waves. Like, if we can kind of... Completely. Yeah. Um, we haven't heard your amazing piece yet. Do you want to read uh, your piece? I don't know if I want to after these two. These two are yeah, so good. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, also, uh, let me try and find um, it. I'll and try Charlie's book, also, if anyone hasn't read it, is incredible and just very worth reading. Can I have that on my CV, too? Yeah. <laughs> OK, so this is called... It's quite short. It's called... A Brief um, History of My Womanhood. 1992. I am born. They write mail on my birth certificate. They wrap me in a blue blanket. They are wrong. 1996. First memory of feeling like I should have been a girl. 2000. Called a girl for the first time by a boy on my council estate. I go home to my mum and I cry. 2003. I'm sent to an all-boys school. On my first day, a boy in my class tells me I look like a girl. I'm bullied for being a feminine every single day until I leave seven years later. Um, 2004, I watched Nadia on Big Brother. It's the first time I, see, I truly see myself. I have a word to understand who and what I am. 2005, puberty starts. My body starts to change in ways I don't like. I start to hate myself. I hide my razor from my parents in my room because I'm ashamed that I have to shave my face. 2009, the bullying at school is worse than ever. I'm suicidal. I stumble across RuPaul's Drag Race on TV at 3 a.m. on a school night. It saves my life. I start doing drag. I feel the the happiest I've ever been when I'm dressed as a girl. 2010, I get into Central St. Martins. I'm celebrated for my femininity for the first time in my life. Despite this, I'm still very depressed and I hate my body. Drag is not enough. 2011, Carmen Carrera comes out as trans on RuPaul's Drag Race. I think I might be ready to transition. 2012, the darkest period of my life. Apparently, I tell a friend I think I might be trans. I don't remember this. 2013, I have a breakdown. I accept I'm trans. I tell my family and friends. I go to my GP for help. He tells me I will never be a woman and refuses to help me. I have to see two more GPs before I find one who helps me. 2014, I legally change my name. I take my mum and my my nana's name as my middle names because they're the strongest women I know. I need their strength as I start presenting as a female, as I'm attacked daily, verbally, physically and sexually, and I say Hail Mary before I leave the house every day. 2015, after waiting two years, I finally get an appointment at the Gender Identity Clinic to discuss transitioning. I begin hormones later that year. My body's chemistry feels right for the first time in my life. The transphobia I face in the street starts turning into sexism as I begin to pass more, and I'm catcalled, told to cheer up, and followed home like all of my other girlfriends. 2016, first time having sex with a straight man. Also the first of many times I don't come during sex with a straight man. I forgot I read that. (laughs) Sorry if there's any kids in the audience. Um, I've I've finally saved enough money for my facial feminization surgery, and I booked my surgery date. It's the best day of my life. I cry on my bedroom floor. 2017, I'm raped. Two weeks before my surgery, I have to go on PEP. I'm not allowed to have surgery. I cry on my bedroom floor. I feel like I'm going to cry, sorry. I cry on my bedroom floor. 
I end up having surgery the day after my birthday. It's the best birthday present ever. I'm truly happy for the first time since I was a child. Um, 2018, oh, sorry, I feel like I'm going to cry. I'm such a mess. <laughs> 2018, the day after my birthday, I have my first consultation for lower surgery. I feel, no, oh, sorry. You can stop if you want. Yeah. I feel like I finally have a day for the end of my prison sentence. I will, sorry, 2019. Sorry. The ending's happy. It's a really happy ending. (laughs) 2019. I will be reborn, I will be free, I will be the girl I was always meant to be. Yeah. incredible Sorry. and you're Easter incredible Drone guys literally <laughs> um what would you say if you could talk to yourself in 2012 in 2012 it, honestly I, I i said that to myself when i got referred for my lower surgery i like literally i fell on the floor and i cried because i was just like i remember so vividly like the first when i went to my gp and he told me like go away i'm, no, I'm not helping you and i remember feeling like a million miles from where I want to be mm. and like to think that I've walked those a million miles and like I've been actually referred for surgery now and like it's I'm on the waiting list and stuff and it's just like I, I literally I wish I could talk to every trans girl at the start of their transition just be like you're going to get through it like it's yeah it's but the also best not feeling. just I mean you do you've yeah. helped so many oh, people oh thank you I did like, say yes to that yeah no like, you <laughs> yeah <laughs> I have you. I'm amazing yeah, um, but you thank have you. like you and I think that's also the message of this book it's like you can use feminism for yourself. I always say that yeah. feminism can, can be like the best tool of self-help in the world. Like it helped me overcome what I went through more than anything. But you can also then spread that to other people, and yeah. that's you are the ultimate model of that. You're incredible. Thank you, Scarlett. Thank you, babe. Uh, thank you so much to Charlie, Tasha, and Nimco for being incredible women and incredible panelists. Uh, and thank you all for being an amazing audience. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, or even if you didn't, we'd love to hear from you. So make sure you subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, published by Penguin Random House, is available to buy now via the link in the description of this episode. All of the royalties from each book sold go to the amazing UN organisation Girl Up, who is supporting girls across the world. For more information and to join our gang, please follow us on Instagram at at feminists. Thank you so much to Audio Boom for helping us get it out there and to the wonderful pink feminists who've joined us as guests. Um, if it's very windy, I'm sorry. Uh, it's uncontrollable, unfortunately, uh, but we'll try and speak up. I think I have always been a feminist, but it wasn't until I was diagnosed that I really learned what. Crikey. <laughs> it's the ghost Mother of the nature. patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming for us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.